And this is the year 2015? October 21st, 2015. God, so like you weren't kidding. The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're binge-watching the entire Back to the Future trilogy. And, just another final warning, we will be talking about the end of the movies. We will ruin it for you. So if you haven't already seen the whole trilogy, go away and watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. This is BBC One. On the 29th of November 1985, fresh-faced 24-year-old Canadian Michael J. Fox was interviewed live on the BBC's Wogan show. It's the kind of all-American teen hero that you play, though, isn't it? Kind of, yeah, which is good for a Canadian. (laughs) Although already a TV star in America, thanks to his role in the NBC sitcom Family Ties, he was still a virtual unknown outside of the US. You're in America now with the success of Back to the Future. You, I suppose, could be regarded as a superstar. And yet here, the movie hasn't opened yet. So, so, nobody knows who you are? Yeah. (laughs) That would all change just four days later. Back to the Future was the highest grossing film of 1985. Great Scott! And became a global phenomenon, catapulting Fox to international stardom in the role of Marty McFly, making orange puffer vests fashionable and creating one of the world's most recognisable and iconic movie vehicles. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? At the time of its release, it was met with almost universal acclaim, with US critic Roger Ebert comparing it to Frank Capra's classic It's a Wonderful Life. Even President Ronald Reagan was a fan. As they said in the film, Back to the Future, where are we going? We don't need roads. Ronald Reagan? The actor? The following year, Michael J. Fox was relaxing at home, watching the brand new home video release of the movie, when he noticed a small change had been made to the ending of the VHS version. Three words appeared on the screen. Three words which had not been on the original theatrical release. To be continued. He immediately called his agent. Sure enough, in 1989, the franchise returned with the second and third instalments filmed back-to-back. Your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. The sequels suffered a few behind-the-scenes setbacks, not least the decision of actor Crispin Glover not to return to the role of George McFly. Hey, McFly, what do you think you're doing? But was Glover right not to get involved? Certainly parts two and three weren't as commercially successful or critically as claimed as the first movie. The film review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes gives part two a rating of just 61% compared to the mighty 96% for the original. So were the follow-ups simply tacked on money spinners designed to flog theme park rides and video game spin-offs? Did the writers paint themselves into a corner with the ending of the first movie, a throwaway line which was never intended to support a sequel? It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. Or do the three films work together as a genuine trilogy to make something greater than the sum of their parts? 
Later in the show, we'll be taking a closer look at the weird world of Crispin Glover, the actor who played George McFly, and also finding out about an alternate reality where a different actor played Marty McFly. But first, it's time to uh, introduce the people joining me in the studio. Here we have handy Andy Goulding, and her talent is glacial. It's Rachel Burnett. You try and get something that rhymes with Rachel, it doesn't go, okay? Even wiki rhymes couldn't come up with it, whereas Andy... There's so many things and we're not going there. Okay, right. Snappy (laughs) intro. Snappy intro, you say. Three films to get through, you say. Right, okay. (laughs) Now, until recently, I could honestly say the sentence, I've never seen any of the Back to the Future films, to varying reactions. Uh, Mostly surprised, but sometimes a knowing look of just how daft I am. So was I missing out? Rachel, this is just one big advert for a soft drink, isn't it? Oh my God, yeah, there's lots of product placement. <laughs> Do you know, I hadn't actually noticed. As a child, it was clearly subliminal. I hadn't noticed. But watching them again, I was like, wow, there's mentioning that, they're mentioning that. There's Pepsi, there's this, there's that, there's Tab. Yeah, all the time. But no, it's so much more than that. So for someone who hasn't, there are people like me who have reached the age of just under 40, not quite, just under 40, and won't have seen this. What's the attraction? It's just so unusual. I think it is a really, and even now it's still an unusual film. Insofar there's three parts, it's which was unusual at the time for things to be three parted. Great cast, could not be cast better. Um, time travel, no real romance in it. Pure adventure, really good, solid Saturday matinee adventure. Andy, what were you, what are your opinions on this? Do you do you look back on it fondly? Is this uh, uh, is this reminiscence, or is it is it more than that? Does it mean more to you than just re- a, a mild reminiscent? Um, well, there's obviously an element of that. I mean, there's loads of films from the eighties which it was it was very important that I saw them at that time in my personal development. I think, uh, and I probably wouldn't love them now uh, if I hadn't done things like Short Circuit, maybe Inner Space, that kind of thing. But I think Back to the Future is more than that. Definitely, I think I would have loved this definitely the first one and uh, possibly all three even if i hadn't seen them at the time and i think the the proof of that is when i i first saw it as a kid i missed a lot which i I picked up on later so i think i appreciated it more the older i got and i think having just watched them again lately i think i love them now more than i ever have in my life so well being forced to sit down and it was i tell you what i did feel forced to sit because we're doing this (laughs) i felt forced to, to sit down and watch i'm pretty sure i must have seen the ending before because that rang a bell but i did procrastinate before i did i got round to it eventually and it did seem like you know taking on the trilogy as as, as we have done here it it seemed like a, a challenge laying before me but what a film i mean the, the you know the first film what a film it, it's it's really quite something michael j fox you you forget what just what a screen presence he is he, he's got everything he's got you know charisma you know talent uh, the looks every you know just just everything you know it's i i, I get it i really really get it uh, and understand it but the rest of the cast like you said rachel you made a perfect point you made earlier about the casting of it it, it was just exciting excellent wasn't it christopher lloyd playing the perfectly eccentric doc brown isn't it you know um it's just just really really great and one thing that did shock me and i I don't know if this is just me and i don't know if it's me now because i'm a parent or whatever but it seemed very sweary oh category b maybe not not you know not not so heavy it's a pg film um and i started i started counting the amount of swears we're not going to go into that now we're not going into the nitty-gritty of it now but i was quite surprised by it because initially my my idea for this and it didn't work out because i was procrastinating so much that i was going to uh, watch it with, uh, with with my kids and see, and see what their reaction was to it now, you know, and, and see if it, it, it if they enjoyed it. Didn't work out that way, but I'm quite pleased they didn't because, uh, you know, there's a few S&B bombs in there. Mm. <laughs> I think there was a habit in the 80s of uh, 
certain films, they would actually encourage the writers to put swear words in them and push the rating up a little bit so they'd be taken more seriously or so that the rating would hit the audience. Like, if you watch something like uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off... And that's shown all the time in the daytime, cut. If you watch it on video, I think there's just one scene where there's an F word in it. And in those days, I used to push it up to 15. And I think because it was very much a teen film, they used to put just one instance of the F word in there so it would get the 15 certificate. I suppose as well as the casting... It's the, the writing as well, though, you know, the, the screenplay itself is very, very good. When they talk about the Libyans and things like that, you know, and the, and the fear uh, when, when they go back into the 1950s and the fear of, uh, of nuclear, of the, of the nuclear threat and the nu- all that kind of thing, it's, it, it's all there and it's, it's, it is very, very well done, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very evocative of each of the times that it looks at throughout the, throughout the trilogy, 1885, 1985 and 1955. And they all have these very specific things going on. And it's, I think they've captured really well. When, when you watch it, do you... Uh, I mean, you, you've, you've both obviously watched it quite a few times now. Oh, it's yes. your first time seeing it. So uh, do you start picking... I don't know. I know how to put this. It, I think we don't want to be one of those podcasts that starts picking the holes in plots of things. There's so many of those out there and good luck to them. You know, you, you crack on with it. But this, you know, this does go in and out and it's a bit weird in places where you know he's, he's got his mum cracking onto him um and and and, and let's actually let's bring that up there um uh, leah thompson I mean, what a fantastic actress uh, and doesn't she play that part so oh, well a yeah. pretty tricky part but yeah when i was a kid i just wanted to be her she was so pretty and so vivacious and such a talented actress as well and she has to play so many different roles she's just fantastic and probably quite underrated to be honest everyone talks about michael j fox about christopher lloyd and she gets forgotten but she's actually really fantastic i feel that way as well about thomas f wilson who played mm. biff uh, one tired old speech that i always try out to everyone who uh, it's, it's such a tired old speech now uh, that it's actually got a name the biff variations <laughs> and it's the number of, of different variations thomas f wilson plays on biff he starts out as the original 1985 Biff, who's bullying George McFly, obviously. Then we see the 1955 Biff, who's bullying the younger George McFly. Then you see the, the humble new 1985 version of Biff. Uh, then going into the sequels, you see old man Biff in 2015, and then his grandson Griff. And then the new alternate reality 1985 Biff, when we go back to 1985. And finally, Buford Mad Dog Tannen. And I mean, arguably, you could say some of those are the same character, but I think he, he brings something different to each of those characters. And I think he, he is given more of a chance to do that than Leah Thompson, who in the first one has got this, this great role. And then as, as you go through the rest of the films, she's essentially just asked to play the same role, but put on a squeaky old woman's voice or play like an ancestor from years back who has very little to do with the plot whatsoever so I think it's a shame that she wasn't used as well in those, those second two it is yeah I mean so some of those parts you mentioned there where you, you know you talk about the squeaky voice and things like that I mean let's, let's, I'd like to bring this one to you actually Rachel because you used to work as a wig maker didn't you in the film industry and I've got a million questions for you on that and I, I, I think when, when we when we come to uh, selecting uh, for series two um, I want to try and find um, a, a program or a, or a, a film uh, with particular attention uh, to the wig so we, we can uh, I could suggest we, some for that exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know yeah, listen out for that but um, 
ageing makeup. That's come mm. on since the 80s, hasn't it? <laughs> My goodness, yeah, it really has. I did makeup artistry as well at college, so I know about how to age people too. And um, and I watched some documentaries about how they did it and four hours in the makeup chair and everything else. And it's like, wow. Well, that was what, three hours of talking, wasn't it, before they got round to starting? <laughs> but, oh my goodness, it has come on a lot. If you think about how um, fantastic Catherine Tate's old age makeup is yeah. in her comedy show, which is just a BBC budget. And then you look at the old age makeup that was done for Back to the Future. It's, it's come on a long way. It has. A really long way. So, uh, yeah, and the wigs do distract me a lot, I have to say, as the years have gone on and I've got more proficient at wig making. It's very distracting. OK, so, so I'm going to ask you one question about <laughs> wig making now and then we... Because we, we need to, you know, we, we're going to spin this out, believe yeah. me. Um, <laughs> is, when, you're, when you're looking at a film now... Mm. I don't suppose there's a film goes by where you don't look at the wig, is there? Always, always look at the wig. I mean, well, th- this is the beauty. I mean, I'm very, very lucky because I was trained and worked for one of the best wig makers in the world and they've won Oscars. Um, so I can look at the ones that I did and you can't tell and you would not be able to tell their wigs. But when you can tell, oh my goodness. I mean, can I mention one film that I... I Absolutely, just, yeah, so yeah, yeah, make sure you do. Um, Pride and Prejudice, Joe Wright's beautiful Pride and Prejudice. Attention to details, immaculate costumes are beautiful. And yet... Our lovely Kira Knightley is wearing a dramatically awful wig throughout the whole thing, <laughs> given away by the fact that you can see her short hairstyle coming out the back. <gasps> and the first time she turned around in the film, oh my goodness me, and that was it for the rest of the film. That's it. So ruined yeah, it ruined it. it, absolutely ruined it. Are they made out of real hair? Yes. Yes, they are. Well, most of them are, yes. Okay, it's freaking me out a little bit. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Andy, it's not perfect, is it? Uh, no, I mean, uh, you hear a lot of people say that it is a perfect film. And it's. Uh, I think there's very few films that, that you could describe as perfect. There's certainly a few things about it that I don't like. Uh, the scene where, he, where Marty McFly pretends to be Darth Vader from the future, scrambling... George McFly's brain if he doesn't take Lorraine Baines to the dance is just a little bit too silly I think and especially since it's sort of brushed over that is supposed to be what makes George take that final step and then he just forgets about all that and that's kind of indicative of those those kind of really silly plot wrinkles that used to get in a lot of 80s films most of which were ironed out in the process of bringing Back to the Future to the screen I mean originally Doc Brown was supposed to have a pet chimp uh, the time machine was going to be a fridge for a while but <laughs> they, uh, uh, they actually uh, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis were apparently concerned that children would climb into fridges and and get trapped in that obviously concerns which had died away by the time they made Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that I really don't like, and it's it's the one thing that that really gets to me in the film, I think, is that there's this real towards the end of the film. There's a real a drive. There's all these amazing endings, and it builds and builds and builds. I and mean, we get the the punch in the parking lot, and then we get the the dance with uh, Johnny B. Good, and then we get obviously the race to get back to the future and then finally we we get the flying delorean that iconic moment at the end of of the first episode but right in the middle of it there's just this line that really annoys me it's when marty wants to get back early enough to warn the dark that he's going to be shot by the libyans we have more time I got all the time I want. I got a time machine. I can just go back early and warn him. Okay, ten minutes ought to do it. Now, he knows that his best friend is going to get shot. He's got a time machine. He could go back any time, and yet he goes back ten minutes before and races to, <laughs> to warn him. I mean, 
it's kind of reflected in, in the ending as well when the doc comes back for him and he says, there's no time to waste. We've got to go to the future and sort this problem out. And you think, what? You've invented a time machine. Why do you not realise how time works? <laughs> but because the, that's the big sort of flourish at the end, we, we forgive that one more. But there's all sorts of little niggles like that. And you could say I'm being picky, but... You're being picky. No, there, there are... Um, I, I, I don't recall a single time-travelling film without gaping holes or, or, no. or, or things like that, you know, it, which I suppose in theory would get in, in the way of the plot. There'd be no film, would there? Because, you know, it'd all be solved out before you even saw it. And if time travel existed, then we'd be seeing it before, before it'd be happening. And we've already seen it. So time travel we know doesn't exist, but it does it because we, it might just all be fixed anyway. And we don't know it's all happening outside of us. But, and that's what, scra- that's well, what scrambles... I've said that many times myself, Bob. That's what scrambles my brain about any time travelling film. And I, I don't know, sometimes I have a reluctance to watch them because I know they give me those dark thoughts at three o'clock in the morning when I go back to sleep. Okay, so now later, uh, we're going to be finding out whatever happened to George McFly and discovering who nearly played the part of Marty McFly. That's all after this short break. Now, this is the slightly awkward bit of the show where we pass the hat around. Making a podcast isn't expensive, but there are some costs we do need to cover. And to be honest, it would be nice to have a few quid to keep us supplied with coffee and cake. You can help the show by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Always Looking Up, The Adventures of an Incurable Optimist by Michael J. Fox. And we get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with all the latest games for his ZX Spectrum. Now, back to the show. What are you looking at, butthead? You're listening to a spoiler as we review all the whole trilogy of Back to the Future uh, in its 30th year, or the 30th year certainly of the release of the first film, uh, which is uh, good enough to uh, have a party for it and a new DVD Blu-ray box set, and there'll be another one in 1989, another one in uh, 1990, or 30 years on from those dates anyway. Okay, so as we move into the future with part two, this film always had to happen, didn't it? Um, It wasn't actually planned to at all. You're kidding. Um, No, indeed. Um, I didn't actually know this until quite recently. I'm saying it with authority, but I've only just recently (laughs) found out myself. Um, Yeah, Zemeckis, in an interview recently, said that they weren't planning a sequel at all. They thought one film, that'd be it. They threw on the ending as a bit of a a joke, really, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing, and... um, and he said, oh, well, if they'd known that there was going to be a sequel, he would not have put Jennifer in the car. It was a real problem because now they had a girlfriend in the car and what we're going to do with her, hence the being knocked out pretty much straight away. Um, it was a solution, so, wasn't it? I must admit, she yeah. did She did appear to be like a spare yeah. part there. She was surplus to requirements. I think the Jennifer problem was equally tricky as well because they changed actresses, didn't they? Did you notice yeah. that? I, I actually grew up not noticing that Jennifer changed <laughs> between the two films, but it's Elizabeth Shue in the second and third one. With a wig on. <laughs> I don't, yeah, well, okay. what did you think of that wig? Horrible! <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't I, believe I didn't notice that when I was growing up. Well, I watched it yesterday and I didn't notice, but there we what? go. I know, I know. 
<laughs> uh, perhaps put the kettle on at that point. Um, but I mean, part two is 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 fun for a while, especially if you watch it sort of back to back, because you're seeing these sort of same sort of scenes replicated in a different diner in a different town square. Well, no, no the, sorry, the same town square, the same diner, but all made up differently uh, and made up in the future, which they could only dream of for, for, for 1985. And I think this is. I don't know, I do picking apart, I suppose it's our job here, isn't it? But a, a, a time in any past when they're looking at the future, and that future happens to be now, 2015, um, they, they've only got the materials of 1985 to play with, haven't they? Yeah. Um, so, no, you know, no one dresses like that. Although, that baseball cap, that, that was a couple of years back, wasn't it? They weren't too far off the mark there. There was a few bits that were accurate. I mean, the video call with needles... I was thinking, okay, we do that, video calls, they're Skyping, he's Skyping. But the, the over-reliance on faxing is probably not quite right, <laughs> the death of fax. Um, so Can there's, I just, there's quite uh, a lot point, that isn't right. Sorry, Gretchen. No, you go for it. I, just wanted, I just wanted to point out that, uh, that Needles is a character because the video call with Needles sounded quite nightmarish. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Needles is a character played by Flea. So they got a few things right there and I think I thought I saw someone looking into some kind of tablet device or he had, certainly had a screen on his arm. Um, but what they got wrong there is that the entire country wasn't staring into it as they walking down the street, you know, and all relying on it um, to, to, well, basically to show off. But for me, it got a little tedious after a while. That replication, it was almost like a, a carbon print uh, taken from 1955, put into 2015 of the film with, with just, you know, angles that go off and around the place. And then I'll be honest, I didn't even like the fact that the DeLorean flew. I don't know why. <laughs> well, for it me, just, the... the, uh, the the major weakness of, of Back to the Future 2 is that whole first act in the future uh, and that whole scene with Michael J. Fox playing his own daughter and it's all it's all just very silly. I mean, I, I loved it at the time when I was a kid, but I've gone the other way now. With the first one, I grew up and appreciated it more. With the second one, that first act alone, I just... I feel I've grown out of it and it's too silly and obviously it's setting up things for later in the trilogy but I feel it, it, it goes on too long and it holds back from what I think I think the rest of it is actually really good and I was surprised going back to it how much I enjoyed the rest of the second film but there's a good sort of half an hour 40 minutes at the beginning which is is just not very good at all. And if you're doing that at the beginning of a film, and it did, you, you, I had exactly the same reaction there, Andy, and it, it lost me because of that. You know, I, I couldn't, I struggled to get back into it, uh, really. But also, one of these things you find from from 80s films looking back and I think it's the same uh, with things like Die Hard an action film and this is this you you know you would consider not an action film but a uh, you know it's, it's got a lot of it it needs action and momentum in it for the 80s they always took a long time to get going now you would always have like uh, uh, an impact something happening you know something massive happening right at the beginning uh, even if it's later on you know because we are in time travel here they could you know they could they could do it they could monkey around with that but they, they were so blinking slow in the 80s weren't they what earth were they going on with no I must I agree actually about that first part of the of the second film and I think there's an element of showing off actually because the first film there's a lot of practical effects and the second film they've got a bit more clever and um and they're going oh we can do this thing where there's like the same person playing loads of different characters in the same scene aren't we clever because ILM um Industrial Light and Magic invented this system of how to do it so or, or we'll do this and we'll put this and then there's a flying thing here and look we can do a holographic jaws and so they just kind of threw everything at it and went look what we can do aren't we clever and the plot just just went there was just nothing there for ages and it yeah it kind of lost me too actually yeah so one of the 
pivotal characters in the original movie was Marty's father, George McFly. Uh, but from the second movie onwards, George barely featured. Our producer, Johnny, has been finding out why. For me, the undoubted highlight of the first Back to the Future movie was Crispin Glover's portrayal of the awkward, stuttering and ineffectual George McFly. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. His performance was a bundle of nervous energy and tics which lit up the screen and provided many of the film's funniest moments. Lorraine, my density has popped me to you. What? George returns only briefly in Back to the Future Part 2. We first see him as a 77-year-old in the year 2015, hanging upside down from a hovering orthopaedic drone. What happened to Grandpa? Oh, he's always back out again. How's Granddad's little pumpkin? How did you do that? How did he do that? Oh, out on the golf course. Uh... There's something not quite right about this scene. The actor playing George McFly looks like Crispin Glover and talks like Crispin Glover, but it's not actually Crispin Glover. It's an actor called Jeffrey Wiseman, wearing a prosthetic mask in order to look like Glover. So what happened? Earth Angel, Earth Angel. In the four years between the first and second movie, Glover's public persona took some seriously weird turns. It all started with a bizarre and now infamous appearance on David Letterman's late-night talk show in 1987, where Glover turned up with long flowing hair and glasses, wearing striped flare trousers and bizarre platform shoes. Folks, please welcome Crispin Glover. From the start, he seemed awkward and nervous. Do you do, do, you do a lot of uh, television shows? Oh, yes, now because I've been in movies that are big and uh, I'm, I'm a movie star, so... Then a member of the audience heckles his platform shoes. This seems to completely throw him and sets him off ranting about the press, getting increasingly distraught. The, you're talking... I don't... Look, I, the press says things about you in, 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 the, in the paper. They said, they said, they said Crispin Glover... Paul, is this, is this the first time you've seen another guy drown? Before, finally, he attempts to karate kick a shock-looking Letterman in the head, only missing by inches. You seem to be distraught. They don't... You seem to be distraught. People try to make me sound a lot weird, and yeah. I'm just... I'm strong, you know? I'm strong. I can arm wrestle. I, uh, do you want to arm wrestle? No. I've been taking... No, you know, I've been taking... These aren't mine. I can... I can, I can kick. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go check on the top ten. No, at this point, Letterman walks off and the show cuts to a commercial. When it comes back, Glover has been removed from the set. Did you enjoy that, Paul? It was uh, an interesting segment. Yeah. Uh... I think that's the first time uh, we've been doing the show that a, a guest actually tried to kick me. Then, in 1989, his career took another strange turn when he recorded and released a concept album with the snappy title The Big Problem Does Not Equal The Solution, The Solution Equals Let It Be. The album included, amongst other things, a bizarre cover of These Boots Are Made For Walking and a Beastie Boys style track about, um, well, self-pleasure. The lead single was entitled Clowny Clown Clown, and the self-directed video featured sexy bikini-clad clowns vomiting, sinister figures in pig masks, and some truly bizarre dancing from Glover. I was walking on the ground, I didn't make a sound, then I turned around and I saw a clown. It really has to be seen to be believed. Seriously, look it up on YouTube. It started barking like a hound. Even now, it's still unclear what was going on in this period. The popular perception was that Glover was having some sort of very public nervous breakdown. But was it actually a piece of performance art? Or an elaborate practical joke? Glover has never explained, but his subsequent esoteric career as a writer, actor and filmmaker suggests all might not have been what it seemed. 
1989, when the cast of Back to the Future was reassembled, Glover was not present. He'd apparently chosen to walk away from the biggest role of his career. The part of George McFly was cut to a bare minimum and cobbled together using archive footage and that fake crisping Glover in prosthetics. The exact reasons for his absence are hazy. Was it about money? It's been alleged that Glover demanded equal pay with Michael J. Fox, although Glover denies this. Was it over artistic differences? Glover apparently felt the ending of the first film was too materialistic, as Marty's parents go from poor and miserable to rich and in love. Or did the producers decide that Glover was just too awkward and weird to work with? On set, when Jeffrey Wiseman first donned his fake Crispin Glover prosthetic face, cinematographer Dean Cundy was heard to remark, I think we have Crispin without the trouble. Even now, 25 years on, the subject is still raw for Glover. Just last year he spoke to Sirius XM's Sam Roberts, and the anger about the way he was treated is clearly still there. What's, what, what's particularly aggravating about it now is that there's this producer, Bob Gale, yeah. co-writer, who's made up new lies on these Blu-rays. Glover believes that the fake Crispin Glover was punishment for him raising questions about the movie's script. Indeed, he took the producers to court over the use of a double and actually got the Screen Actors Guild rules changed so that such a thing could never happen again. But whatever the reasons for Glover's decision to walk away, the second and third instalments of Back to the Future undoubtedly suffered from the absence of a key character in George McFly, played by a unique, eccentric and deeply weird actor. Yes! Yes! I'm George! George McFly! There we go. Uh, Former Radio Academy nominee, Johnny Hall there. Thank you very much, Johnny. Um, okay, so if you've been to the past and you've been to the future, uh, which is now the present, and then you're visiting the past, where do you go? Even further into the past, to a rooting, tooting, <laughs> western. Okay, so, uh, yeah, okay, they're going they're going back into the western. Um, I don't know how long we're going to get into talking to you two about uh, Back to the Future Part 3, uh, where we don't talk about awful Irish accents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one to pry into a man's personal affairs, but... Exactly. How is it that you came to be way out here without a horse or boots or a hat? Until that point, I, d- I don't think Michael J. Fox had put a foot wrong, no matter what. But they, they should have had a meeting at some point where they said, uh, can you do a, uh, an Irish accent for us? Um, no, 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 no. We said Irish, Michael. Um, and he, no, no, my, no. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, next to, it's next to England, just over, over the sea from Michael. My, no, no. Let's, let's, let's not make him Irish. That's, uh, uh, they, they, they should have. Oh, gee, and that, uh, why did they bother making parts two and three? Come on. <laughs> Cynic in me says money, but just to uh, add to your horror of the Irish thing, imagine my horror. Not only have we got the most appalling Irish accents, we've got the most appalling wigs and facial hair. <laughs> so for me, it was just a nightmare of epic proportions. <laughs> so yes, the first, I could well get rid of all of that in my head. But yeah, I think the second and third, without being too cynical, it's, I think the main motivation's got to be money, really. Because they're nowhere near as good as the first, either of them. Although I do like the third one. I do, because I like Mary Steenburgen and I like the fact that he has a nice happy ending and stuff. So Okay, yeah, so that's the love interest for Doc, isn't it? Yeah. Who comes in, yeah, yeah, I must admit, I was, I, yeah, I've, I've, written, I've even written that down. Look, I've written, it says here, right in front of me, nice to see Doc happy. I swear I didn't see that first. <laughs> uh, 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 Spino, you'd be looking at me, copying my answers. Here. I've got it as well. <laughs> well, no, in which case it shows, I think that shows it exactly then and demonstrates just uh, how, how well Christopher Lloyd put his character across. Yeah. And didn't you find it quite interesting that Doc becomes the romantic lead? Mm-hmm. Marty's almost comedy sidekick in the, I say almost because that, that Irish accent isn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's interesting how, how there's different the different genres shift across the the trilogy. I think Cause the first one, although it, it's sort of technically a sci-fi film, it's not really. It's, it's sort of a comedy, nostalgic kind of high school film as well. I think the second one is more of a, a sci-fi film with all the the different timelines, and then the third one is is both. I think both a western and a romance. Uh, and because of that, it's it's quite a bit slower paced, is what I noticed when I when I watched it this this time round. But it doesn't necessarily hurt it. I don't think. I think I came away this time thinking that I still preferred the second part to the third part. I've been backwards and forwards on that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. But uh, a, a lot of people complain about the third part. And the major thing they complain about is the ending with the train. Uh, I mean, what do you guys think oh of that? God, no, I hate. always hate that ending. Always, always hated it. I just love the idea of him and Clara going off and just living their lives in the, in the West and maybe Marty coming across a kid or something that might have been theirs and is now an old man or something. <laughs> I don't know. But a train, really? No. It, just, it seemed like a whole lot of mess to clear up afterwards, didn't it? <laughs> I, I think, who is going round? Where is the man with this? you know, the fag hanging out his mouth with the flat cap on and the brush sweeping up after these people. And I thought that right from the second that Marty McFly plugged in uh, that electric guitar in the first one. I thought, who's going to clear that mess up? I always, I always think about that. Whenever I see a ticker tape parade, I always think about that as well. Who's cleaning that up? Flipping eight. Um, now, here's a, a bizarre question that I don't think, you, you weren't prepared for this. And it, it occurred to me today when I was procrastinating about something else. Could could you ever do like they? I think they did this with the Godfather that time, where they put it in order. Could you ever re-edit the whole of the trilogy in a time order? <laughs> if so, would it make sense? And if so, why would you do it? <laughs> well, you would you would have to overlay parts of the second film on the first film to start with, so that would be weird. Oh no! I mean, the whole thing would be bizarre and pointless. <laughs> but don't you know? Don't, don't get me wrong. Bizarre and pointless is is, is absolute. But it, I, all, I must admit, that's all I want to do now. <laughs> I don't. Know, I think it just takes something away, and people do that. It's like Memento is one of the most fantastic films. I absolutely love it, and yet somebody has put it the right way around because it's a movie that's shot. So you see the the ending first and you go mm-hmm. back to the front and they've they've done it the other way around and it's it's okay but that cleverness is gone yeah. and that intrigue is gone and it's just kind of pointless yeah i think people so, done it with pulp fiction haven't they yeah. any any film that's non-linear people can't wait to get in and <laughs> sort it out yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> really I, I think you're underestimating the amount of time i have on my hands <laughs> yeah. so as a as, as a trilogy, we're, we're living in a time where I don't know Ghostbusters is being remade. And I'm I, I'm looking forward to that because loads of other people aren't, um, <laughs> and it's probably a lot of sexist people uh, because they, you know they're remaking it with female leads. Yeah. Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. It's exactly what they should be doing. Um, but could this ever be remade? I mean, well, I mean, it, well, they'll run out of ideas surely soon, and they'll they'll have to remake it, won't they, to make the money? Well, Robert Zemeckis has actually said that. During his lifetime, he won't allow any reboots and any remakes of Back to the Future. So I think our mission is clear. We have to track down <laughs> Robert Zemeckis and get his head in the pickle jar right now. <laughs> Although he hasn't said no to a musical, which is currently being worked on. Really? There is a musical. Um, it is being written by Bob Gale, uh, the screenwriter for Back to the Future, and Zemeckis is on board. So it, And it's Alan Silvestri doing the music. Wow. Huey Lewis and the News are helping. Well, Huey Lewis, maybe not the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course he had, that, he had that cameo in the first exactly. oh, so yeah it, it's genuinely out there it's, it's a real thing I thought it was a joke but it's real 
Well, that's news to me. I don't know. I have no idea how I feel about that. My instant reaction is joy, um, but that could change by tomorrow. <laughs> it could, quite easily. Andy, you're going to go and see that. You're going to get front row uh, tickets I, for I that. I wouldn't mind as long as as long as they book uh, Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance, to play uh, the, <laughs> the Irish role in the past. Then, uh, t- talking of like the the musical side of things, I heard a, a very nice quote from uh, from well, Bob Gale said it, but he said it's what Christopher had told him about how he, the inspiration he took for playing Doc Brown. He said he was mainly inspired by the conductor Leopold Stokowski uh, from the sort of hunch where he walks around mm-hmm. and the flailing arms. And he said it was, it was as if Doc Brown conducts the orchestra of the world. <laughs> I like that. Fantastic. Now, as we've said, uh, the Back to the Future trilogy made the career of Michael J. Fox. But back in 1985, when the movie started shooting, a different actor was cast in the part of Marty McFly. Rachel has been finding out about this and other near-disastrous Hollywood casting decisions. With unmet expectations of exorbitant fees, clashes of busy timetables and the realisation of just plain bad judgement, it's not uncommon for films to have to be recast even after shooting has started. Back to the Future is possibly one of the better-known recast stories, but just in case you haven't heard it, Michael J. Fox was always the original choice for Marty, but couldn't commit to the role due to the filming schedule of the TV series Family Ties. Eric Stoltz was called in to replace, however, director Zemeckis saw the rushes and thought that his performance was too intense, too method, and killed the necessary comedy of the film. The decision was made to throw away the $3 million worth of filming they had already done with Stoltz and to go back to Michael, who agreed to shoot in the evenings after filming on Family Ties was finished each day. Michael often worked 22 hours a day to fit in both jobs, but still delivered one of the finest performances of his career. One of my more thank the film gods that didn't happen stories is the decision to give the part of Indiana Jones to Harrison Ford instead of the vastly unsuitable Tom Selleck. George Lucas was dead set on Tom, but Spielberg always favoured Harrison. Thankfully, the decision was taken out of both their hands when Tom was offered the part of Magnum P.I. at the same time as Indy, and he chose Magnum. As the Grail Knight would say... He chose poorly. Still looking at iconic 80s films, did you know that Lance Henriksen was James Cameron's first choice for the role of the Terminator? Cameron had envisaged a normal-looking guy in the role to make it more shocking, something he eventually tried out in T2 by casting Robert Patrick as a T-1000. However, in the event, Schwarzenegger auditioned for the part of Carl Reese and got the Terminator instead. Seriously, Arnie must have just walked into that room and the decision was made. Never has an actor so fit the part. Of course, I'm a Terminator. Another classic 80s film, Beverly Hills Cop, had a messy beginning, with the recasting of the lead character Axel Foley. Originally intended for Mickey Rourke, he was then replaced by Sly Stallone, who insisted on rewriting the whole thing as a straight action film. When the film came to nothing, Sly departed, leaving the script to be rewritten again to include all the funny bits which stands the film apart from the usual 80s cop movie. The casting of Eddie Murphy in the lead role was an inspired choice and made the film the classic it is as well as setting up Murphy as a bona fide star. (laughs) On to more recent films, I was stunned to find out that DeGray Scott was cast as Wolverine in the first X-Men film. Although Brian Singer's original choice was Russell Crowe, pay issues ended that wish. DeGray was up next, but chose to play the villain in Mission Impossible 2 instead. Burke. However, the relatively unknown at the time Hugh Jackman stepped into the role and made the character his. Hooray for comic book fans everywhere. Because I'm the best there is at what I do. No recasting article can be complete without mentioning the tragic story of poor Stuart Townsend, who trained for two months for the part of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. 
Filming had already started when director Peter Jackson had a realisation that he had cast the part too young and dropped the poor lad like a stone. Viggo Mortensen, 14 years older than Townsend, got the role without even testing and frustratingly for Townsend, completely owned it. Better look next time, Townsend. Your time will come. So there we go. Um, there's Back to the Future, the trilogy, in a nutshell. Now, it's not the only thing, as well as uh, obviously the musical has uh, been been around about. the uh, There was the theme park ride, wasn't there? Which I think, by the looks of things, was just, I, I think, one of those things you, you can see on the front of, like, Scarborough Skegness Pier, like a, uh, one of those things that travels up and down, and I think you, you get inside the DeLorean. Um, but uh, people went ape for that in the 90s. Um, and, but that, that stopped. They, they took that out in 2007. Uh, but also there's a cartoon series. Anyone ever seen the cartoon series? Oh, uh, yes. I, I did used to watch the cartoon, actually, and it used to have little live action inserts with Christopher Lloyd in the role of Doc Brown introducing the cartoon and doing little science experiments and things uh, I think the, the main characters of, of the cartoon series were Jules and Vern who were <laughs> the, the, the Doc's children uh, and I don't remember it working particularly well I don't know how many series there were but mm. it was well, never a favourite There's also, uh, I found out this week uh, by all the procrastination I've been doing before I was trying to watch Back to the Future, uh, an app um, there's for 76p you can get a, a, a flux capacitor uh, <laughs> put to your phone, but they they do have a disclaimer uh, <laughs> about time travel. Apparently, it doesn't doesn't uh, in, include time travel. Um, I know for 76p that was going to be a bargain, <laughs> uh, but I, I I didn't stump up for it because to be honest, it didn't look like it did a lot. <laughs> if they sold it for 88p, that would have Ooh, been a, a nice, nice tie. Exactly, which brings us nicely nicely to uh, our marking system, which uh, you know is still always going to be a work in progress here. Uh, now. Because that app is 76p and because 88 is a very significant number, I want you to mark it between 76 and 88. Rachel? The whole trilogy or one film at a time? We're doing the trilogy. The whole... whole well, actually, no, go for both. You know, we've got time on our hands here. Okay. Um, okay, so the first one, 86. Okay. Second one, 78. Third one, 79. Ooh. Oh. Mm, oh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, Andy. Okay, I, th- I think the uh, the first one I would have to give the full eighty eight. I think, despite its flaws and everything, I just absolutely love it. Uh, the second one, mainly because of that first act, I'm gonna give. I think it's better than people give it credit for. I'm gonna say eighty one, and then the third one probably seventy nine. Okay, I'm going to go 88 too uh, because it's raw in my mind, but also just because it, it, Michael J. Fox and and the, I think the performances that, that that go into it, and I, I see the only problems really being as the time travel, as we discussed earlier, time travel is always an issue. Uh, second one, I'm going to go for 79, and the third one I'm going to go for 77. They, they, yeah, I, I just went, I skied downhill with this, you know, by the, by, the, <laughs> by the end of it, I was kind of. Uh, sick of being in the future, the past, and the present. Um, okay, but but it has left me with happy memories, and I'll definitely when when they're a little bit older, uh, I'm going to show the kids uh, the first one definitely and leave them to their own devices to, to whether I'm going to force them to watch the first one <laughs> and leave them to their own devices on uh, on on two and three. Um, but uh, but only when they're ready to hear that kind of fruity language. <laughs> You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Music was composed by Aaron Butcher, and I played some synths on there too. Gotta get back in time. 
If you've enjoyed the show and you would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audio book by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, do it via the links on our website and we'll get a few pennies commission to keep us supplied with the coffee and cake. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we'll be donning our wives' best frocks and stockings as we take a look at the 1959 cross-dressing comedy, Some Like It Hot. I'm engaged. Congratulations. Who's the lucky girl? I am. If you'd like to contact us about anything else, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook and go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show is recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here?